Hello, everybody. This is uh, Shift Ten Podcast, uh, the new episode, and we have a special guest. Um, the name of the guest is Bart, and the last name is Fermilin, if I say it right. Uh, let me give him the microphone, and he will introduce himself and correct correct me if I said the last name wrong. Bart? <laughs> it was pretty good. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, my name is Bart uh, Vermeilen, which uh -huh. is... Uh, the Dutch pronunciation. Uh, I come from Belgium, uh, where I currently work as a product owner at the Flemish broadcasting uh, company VRT. And I've had a uh, past mainly working in advertising as a producer and uh, operations director. And I also worked in New Zealand one year, which was really awesome. So that's a nutshell. But you work as a manager or you as a trainer or because I found you from your blog and I found you from your book. So this is your primary job or it's just like a side, you know, activity. Um, uh, interesting question. I think my, my current role is, is a product owner. So I'm really uh, trying to be the bridge between business and development teams. Uh, whereas at the time that I wrote the book, uh, I was working in an advertising agency and there I was mo more like uh, a bridge between the clients, uh, between account management, client service management and creatives, plus also being the bridge sometimes to uh, third party development partners, so a very hybrid uh, place to work in so I don't know if that's an answer to your question yes it is but because most of my questions now will be about the stuff I read on your blog and um, there, there are so many interesting words on the blog which I uh, which I've never heard before so I found them on your blog and I want to ask you about them so I'm, I'm looking for explanations of them and then I will I want to see how they uh, how they go along with the well, the traditional management I have in my head. So that's why I'm asking whether you're still close to these words like sociocracy, holacracy, design thinking, all that stuff. Yeah. Oh. That's... That's what you're doing right now. Yeah. The, the funny thing is um, that like when I... This may be an interesting story. And I started out as a, as a project manager uh, I think 10 years ago or so, something, uh, I started reading the, the, the classical project management books. And uh, then I, uh, my first conclusion was that I really sucked at project management because all my projects went completely wrong. Uh, but then at a, a certain stage, I, I uh, ran into a colleague who was, uh, who was, into agile and uh, I didn't know what that meant at the time. So uh, I basically had lunch with him one day and he explains why he believed that agile was a good thing. And yeah, the, I, I was struck. It was a, a, like a, a slight bulb moment that I suddenly realized, hey, maybe it's not me that is the bad project manager, but maybe there's something wrong in the way we than to manage, manage projects in this 
classical way. And then I did a, a certification uh, as a Scrum Master and I started applying those principles. And as from day one, it really meant a big change, not just for the projects that I was working on, but also for me personally and for my relationship with my colleagues and also like team health and how people in the team were um, how just like, yeah, the, the quality of the work they were doing and, and the way they stood in projects was really a lot better. And I, the, the years after I, I ran into a lot of concepts like uh, sociocracy, like design thinking, uh, like game storming, innovation games. And the funny thing is that in the end, all, all of those principles for me are, are really tied together uh, in, in a very specific may, way. In, in some kind of way, they all seem to mean the same for me. It's all about uh, user value. It's all about behavior. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the, the constant in there is that for, for me, all those concepts are quite... They, they kind of form like uh, a very closely related family of concepts. And the funny thing is that when you, uh, when you apply design thinking or design thinking uh, principles in an agile uh, mindset, you, they, they kind of reinforce each other. The same is there when you apply sociocracy uh, in agile or sociocracy in design thinking or vice versa, they, they kind of reinforce each other because they're basically built around the same values, around iteration, around value, around consent, around equivalence, etc. So that's a bit my, my take on things. Mm -hmm. And can you explain what this sociocracy is in a few words? Because this is the first time I hear that term, to be honest, together with agile. So everybody is talking about agile for the last 10 years and every single team I know, they're all saying that they are doing agile. But I've never heard sociocracy being said by that people. So can you explain what it is? Yeah, the, the, the definition, if, I, if I'm correct, is uh, that sociocracy is a, a principle-based pattern library for more conscious collaboration. Uh, and there's a, so first of all, it's based on, it's a pattern library. So it's, it's, it's a bit like Scrum. It's, it's a very loose toolbox of stuff you can use and you can stuff you can use when collaborating as a team. And, and that's also in there. It's about conscious collaboration. And, 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 and most important is the, the fact that it's principle based. So it's really based around, uh, consent which is a really interesting concept uh, around equivalence i think it's seven principles that are at the core of sociocracy and it, it's it's an interesting concept because uh, uh like we've been applying it the founder uh, i think it was found by a james priest who not, found it is not the right word it was a bit uh, coined by James Priest together with uh, a German man, uh, Bickelbronk, I think. And, and they, they were um, 
working a lot with with sociocracy in the the classic sociocracy, and then they they they, they saw that holacracy uh, was was becoming really popular as a concept. But the funny thing is that holacracy and sociocracy are they're not the same, but they're the, the they try to tackle the same problems. So at that stage, he, he tried to popularize sociocracy by adding a 3.0, which became sociocracy 3.0. Uh, um, and a lot of people in the agile world picked it up because a, a lot of the, the big challenges in, in agile and in big agile transitions and in scale of agile are about how to uh, make people conscious of how they collaborate in a more um, deep way, in a more almost philosophical way. And that's where sociocracy comes in really handy. So you can compare it to holacracy, but also not. It's something different that it's this it's like organization design almost. But what does it mean in practice for, let's say, programmers? Because most of our listeners are programmers or managers of programmers. So what does it mean for them uh, in a more practical sense if tomorrow we say, hey, guys, we are uh, the company who, which works by these rules of sociocracy or holacracy, and they come to the office and they still have some tasks to do, they have some code to write, they have some milestones to meet, then what, what, what is the main difference for them? Like practically, um, I, I I think that the, the the most important difference that you could witness as a, as a developer is that sociocracy is really about uh, a self steering team. So instead of having a, a hierarchical management or PMO that just um, I wouldn't say dictates, but really, it's really strong about how development has to work and what they have to do, and enforcing really tight boundaries. When you do this in a sociocracy way, um, it will all be around. Uh, okay, you as a development team, what do you think that that your driver is also a concept in, in sociocracy? What what do you think the driver is that you're team should be built around what's the main what's what's the tension uh, you want to uh, you want to talk about the, the thing of course is and that's the the difficult thing with sociocracy it quickly becomes really theoretical and almost philosophical and quite light so to apply it in a kind of binary development control that's really hard Mm. But do we still but, have but, like, the boss? But to give, but to, yeah, but to give you a concrete example, so uh, w one of the uh, the patterns in sociocracy which we played around with a little bit was uh, consent decision making, uh, which basically is when you're in a meeting as a team instead of just like a, a classic, instead of just everybody talking when he or she wants to talk when you use the, that pattern of constant decision making um, you have this really rigid system where everybody has to talk uh, in circles everybody gets equal talking time um, which is quite different from the the normal way we have meetings 
in, in meetings, you tend to see that more extrovert people talk a lot and the more introvert people talk less. Whereas sociocracy tries to, to uh, make those people equivalent in a meeting. Uh, that, so when you would apply constant decision making, making in more meetings with development teams, you would try to give uh, people more equal talking time. Uh, another principle which is quite interesting is uh, the idea of consent. So when you're talking amongst colleagues or developers about what would be a good solution for a problem, um, consent means um, when something is uh, good enough for now and safe enough to try, there is no reason why we should not do this. Um, and that's an interesting as an interesting item in in, in an agile agile philosophy because well, as a developer you 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 sometimes try to uh, do the come up with the best solution possible to really tear down all the edge cases and corner cases. Whereas when you treat it in a more sociocracy way, when you apply consent, you really have to talk to each other and say, okay, when we apply this solution, is it good enough for now and is it safe? When no one can, up with, can come up with any argument why it is not good enough and not safe enough to try, then you should do it as a team. Mm -hmm. And the decision is made by the team, not by one person, not by the architect yeah. or the manager. Yeah, indeed. It's really a, it, it's a, an extremely horizontal, uh, flat, hierarchical system. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, there, the, 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 there aren't that many examples of sociocracy being applied in... Uh, in uh, IT companies, uh, there are a couple of examples, but it's it's uh, it's interesting to see, and I think with holacracy as well, uh, that it's not easy to 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 run into really strong, uh, elaborated uh, cases of how to apply this in real life. And why is that? How do you think? Uh, honestly, because I, I think it, it, it is really, really difficult. So we've tried it, um, like the company that I work with at now, uh, we have uh, some kind of uh, matrix organization, which is, you, you, I don't know if you're acquainted with Spotify model? Uh, no. So the Spotify model isn't actually a model. First of all, it's it's uh, uh, Henrik Nieberg. Uh, he's, an, he's an agile coach from uh, Sweden, if I'm correct, uh, or is it Denmark? I think it's Sweden. Um, and he was working at Spotify, and in 2012, the organization Spotify was growing exponentially. And at that stage, he wrote a really interesting paper on how they scaled Agile. Because of course, Agile is made for one team, five to seven people plus a product owner and a scrum master. But what happens when you scale, when you need not one team, but three teams or seven teams or 15 teams? How do you deal with that? 
-hmm. And at uh, at that stage, uh, he, he wrote this paper, which is kind of like a, a picture of how Spotify worked at that time. And what they did is they they there are a lot of concepts in there, but one of the concepts was, which I wanted to touch on was the fact that you have like these uh, vertical uh, pillars, which are the teams. So in every team, there's a product owner, a scrum master, and then a set of cross-functional team members. Uh, and you have a, a number of uh, vertical teams, but then all the people with the same type of role or expertise in all those teams, um, they, they come together in a chapter. And a chapter, you like an example would be a testing chapter or a, a DevOps chapter or a front-end development chapter. So to keep all those teams aligned, because they are cross-functional, you should take out the people with the same types of function and uh, pull them around the table. And, and, and that's a chapter. So it's all the people with the same kind of profile in, in a set of teams which come together just to talk about how they want to exchange knowledge and how they can fix each other's problems, which is really interesting when your organization starts to scale. And we, we have kind of this uh, same setup right now where we use sociocracy um, in those chapters. So instead of having just meetings to talk about what we should do or what we could do or what we have to do. We, we applied those principles of sociocracy just to make it a very lightweight uh, process. But as soon as you start doing it, and now I come to my answer, you really notice that it is extremely hard to do it by the book and to do it in a really thorough way. And it's, it's really tempting to, to loosen and to just uh, go back to old habits of running meetings. And I think that's one of the reasons why there, are so, why there aren't that many cases of, of sociocracy or holacracy, because it's just so, uh, pardon my, so difficult to do that yeah, not a lot of people succeed in really implementing it in a structural long-term way. But you still think this, is, this, this approach is better than traditional management or traditional agile? Um, I, I think it is, um, it's like, it's like uh, an add-on to agile. So it, it, it helps you to understand, I, I think it, it helps me to understand the core values of agile better. And it helps me to apply agile in a better way. But it's, and, and that's interesting because yeah, Agile is, is, is something, by definition, is something ongoing. I, I, so the first sentence of the Agile Manifesto is, we are uncovering better ways of. So Agile is, by definition, really humble and, and not dogmatic. So I think the, the core of Agile is constantly uh, looking out for new, ideas for new philosophies, for new frameworks, and, and trying to apply them in your team, in your process, in your vision, etc. I think that that's the interesting thing about 
as a concept such as sociocracy and allocracy, and even transforming organizations by Lalu, which is also a really interesting book in this topic. It just helps you to uh, get a more nuanced and more uh, more detailed feeling of, of what Agile can be about, I think. So it sounds like this sociocracy and holacracy are like philosophical uh, trends which you can follow, but you cannot really implement it. You just need to understand it, you embrace it, and just feel it, and that will help you to make your agile management better. Am I right? Yeah, and and, and maybe, the, the, yeah, I think it's, there. there's also like a, a toolbox as to it and there's also some practicalities about it but I think that the, the, the that good agile is is simple agile and good scrum for me good scrum is the more the, the purest form of scrum is for me the best scrum and those tools or those frameworks help you to understand that pure form a lot better I think that's my idea mm -hmm. got it and can you tell me a bit about uh, game storming? What that is? Game storming. Yes. I know well, brainstorming, but what is game storming? <laughs> well, well, the the word says it also. It, it's it's brainstorming, but by using games. Uh -huh. um, and and uh, there are like two big, uh, big. Um, authors or or you have brainstorming and you have innovation games but basically they talk about the same which is using games to facilitate meetings and wh why can you use games because what's the the number one problem when you leave a meeting i can ask you the question maybe mm -hmm. sure well, what's the number one meeting when you leave uh, what's number one problem when you leave a meeting most of the time I don't really I can't really summarize the decisions we made I think that's one of the problems yeah exactly so there's no um, there are no um, highlighted or prioritized action items yeah after a meeting it just stops because yeah. everybody has to go to lunch or something that's right. so the, the idea behind game storming is that you use principles from games and what's one of the, the one of the characteristics of a game is that it opens then you play and at the end it ends so it uh, diverges in the beginning and in the end it converges to towards an essence or mm -hmm. an end or a winner or some losers and that's basically what the what game storming does so to give you an example um what uh like one of the the the, the first games i started with and it's uh it's really it seems like a stupid one but it's really interesting is is uh i, I started using game storming for retrospectives so retrospectives being one of the the core um ceremonies i think maybe the most important ceremony in scrum where after a sprint as a team you gather to talk about your process about how you work as a team not just about the outcome but how you gel as a team 
And in those meetings, I, I started using a, a formal format which is called speedboat. And basically, you put, you draw a speedboat on the wall, mm. and uh, you add an island, and you add a sun, and you add uh, a motor, and you add anchors. You you draw all of these, and then you ask to the people in, uh, in the room, okay, when we think about this this sprint we just did or this project that we just did, uh, what helped us? Uh, go faster with that speedboat to the ideal project or the ideal process and what pulled us back and then the idea is that you use the anchors as a metaphor to the for the stuff that pulled you back and that you use the sun as a metaphor for everything that shined on your project and people have to write those down on post-it notes but they have to write them down silently and that's really important aspect in uh, that's almost a theme in, in game storming that you always start with brainwriting and brainwriting is the idea that people start brainstorming individually so, so and that's where you open the game and then people have to pull put the post-its on the big speedboat on the wall and they have to talk a little bit about them and they have to tell their colleagues why they think this or this didn't work and why they think that another colleague did a really good job. So you create this common understanding about the project. And then in the end, one of the techniques uh, is called dot voting. So all the participants, they uh, can put, uh, for example, three dots on items they think are important, which could be something negative, but also something positive. And then you, end your meeting with a prioritized list of things that people are important. And then, for example, the top three, as a group, you try to come up with a specific action item uh, to work on that topic. So if it's a good thing, how can we reinforce it? If it's something that didn't go well, how can we, uh, what can, how can we come up with a countermeasure? And the interesting thing is that after, for example, a one-hour meeting, you close your meeting with three specific action items with an owner, with a deadline, and with acceptance criteria, for example. Which is, of course, it's funny because you, you use post-its and you use uh, markers and you use a big whiteboard and you draw a lot. And it's all ha-ha-ha and funny. But when you compare it to a classic or a more default meeting where you just talk, in that default meeting, you won't end up with having action items. Whereas when you use techniques like game storming, which feel, especially when you haven't done it before, which feel a bit stupid, you think, oh, I'm this big shot program manager and now I'm drawing on little post-it notes. This can't be professional. But in the end, you end up having really strong action items and really strong countermeasures after one hour meeting. That's a bit the idea behind game storming that you use games or combinations of games. And it's most of the times it always has post-its, uh, uh, whiteboards and markers in there. That's like the constant. You have all these different formats that you can use, but it allows you to facilitate uh, working together and brainstorming together in a much more efficient and effective way.
that's a bit the idea. Have you tried that in real in real teams? I do it all the time, of course. Uh -huh. And what is the key problem this this approach is solving? Like people are too slow in their meetings, they don't talk, or what what's the what's the problem we're solving? Um, it's the first problem we're solving is groupthink. When 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 people go into those types of meeting, they and they just they when they only talk, they tend to uh, group think. So after a couple of minutes, they all start saying the same, which is this gray, politically correct thing. Mm -hmm. um, and when you when you use uh, game storming, you can uh, you can yeah you can use the, the you you can you can use those at first sight funny techniques to yeah, almost provoke ideas from more introvert silent people plus it all you also allows you to um to not mute but at least put the more extrovert really forthcoming people just a little more on the same level as their equally intelligent colleagues who are more introvert. I think that it, that is one of the, the the most interesting things, first of all. Plus, it also because you use these uh, these uh, techniques where you converge, where you diverge, and where you converge, it's just. Uh, 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 it's it's, a, it's almost like Scrum. It's when you apply a couple of principles in a in a really um, thought through way. It just allows you to frame problems and solution in a much in a much better way than just talking about it and throwing opinions across the table. Well, people have to know how to play that games. They, as far as I understand, you can't just, uh, that's what I feel, you can't just take that completely new, fresh group and say, hey, now we're going to play the game and everybody will just be happy about it and start playing. I think initially they, there will be some resistance and they will not understand the rules. They will be, you know, sitting quiet and closed or you didn't see that. Um, well, the, the, the funny... The funny thing is that, um, like, I, I had the, the, I had, uh, I was lucky enough to, when, when I start reading, reading about game storming, and when I started thinking about applying it, I, I was, um, there was, there was this um, company in Belgium called Co-Learning, they, they were, they weren't called that, uh, at the time, but their current name is Co-Learning, and they uh, organized uh, game storming retreats, which was also always on a Saturday. Uh, and their idea was, when you want to apply game storming, you, you first have to try it out a little bit. It's like when you're a magician, or you, you have to um, exercise your tricks. So I went to, I think, two or three sessions uh, with, with a couple of peers who were just starting with, with game storming. And that helps a lot because it gives you a little bit of confidence. But then after, I think, even only after two sessions, I already tried it at the company, which at that time was a really 
um, a really hardcore advertising agency where pe people didn't play around. But as soon as I introduced it in a meeting and the first couple of minutes, people were a bit awkward. But when you just do it and you just continue, people immediately feel that it's a really interesting way of talking about stuff and a really interesting way in creating value around certain concepts. So there, at first, when you haven't done game storming, it's, it feels a bit strange and, and funny and uh, not at all serious, but you can really, I've done it with, with uh, C-suite people wearing uh, ties and, and all having private drivers. And the first 10 minutes, they were feeling really awkward. But as soon as you make them feel the value of such a process, they're all in. The interesting thing is with, with game storming, for example, in, in, in particular, that it proves itself quite quickly. So you only need 10 or 15, 15 minutes of game storming and people will buy in just because you feel that it's a really efficient and effective way of, of having game storming sessions. Mm -hmm. That sounds interesting. <clears throat> you know, some people, including myself, think that uh, for software development, I'm not sure about other areas, but for software development, uh, meetings uh, in general are mostly eating our time and giving us really small amount of value back. So the last meetings we have in general, the better. So that's like a, it's like a trend now. It's not like me only saying that, but many software developers, many managers are saying that meetings are actually, uh, in most cases, are just waste of time. So what do you think about that, you know, philosophy? I, I, I couldn't agree more. Oh. I think, yeah, of course. And that's, yeah, I always go back to Scrum, but I think that's one of the, the, the good things about Scrum is that it's, it is a specific set of time boxes where you sit together as a team and it's not more than that specific set. So you have sprint planning, you have a sprint retrospective, you have a daily stand-up, which is limited to 10 or 15 minutes, not more. And the rest of the time you can uh, code and you can focus and you can work together with your teammates just to build stuff. I think that's, that's at the core when, when you have those, that, a constant stream of, of meetings, it's impossible, especially as a developer to, to build quality code because you need to be able to focus at least two or three hours uh, in a row. I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we're on the same page here. So then, then my next question is, don't you feel or don't you think that uh, these um, interesting and really, really funny ideas like holacracy, sociocracy, this game storming, they are kind of inviting people to spend more time on these social activities inside the team instead of, you know, doing tasks and coding and, and producing uh, the product they, they're supposed to, to produce. Because no, no. 
Because after we just discussed that, it, it sounds to me like that would be so much fun to be in a team which is practicing all that. There's going to be games during the meetings. There's going to be uh, decisions made by everybody. So I will constantly be willing, as a programmer, for example, I'll be constantly looking for more social activities in, instead of me sitting in front of the computer and just coding and coding. No? Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. But like well, when you talk about sociocracy or, or even GameStorm, I think you should use those uh, within the, those, that limited set of time boxes. So you should use those for retrospectives, I think, or for chapter uh, events in a more, in a scaled uh, agile setting. So I, I, I don't believe that you should be GameStorming from nine to five. That wouldn't work. Uh, what's interesting though is that I do believe that uh, uh, a good software team um, is constantly um, pairing or even swarming around certain tasks they have to uh, do about certain features they have to build as a team and pairing and swarming by default is a very social activity because it is it is defined by the fact that you sit next to each other talking about code. So I do believe that you should be able to focus, but, but not always individually as a, as a developer. When developers within a team don't talk to each other, I don't believe that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, and, and about the stand-up meetings, which you mentioned already, again, some people are saying that they are uh, also something which we basically waste time at and uh, not just waste time because it's not so much time like you said it's just 10 minutes a day but it's kind of an activity which uh, in most cases demotivates professional developers because they don't understand the point of standing in the in the morning in front of everybody and explaining everybody what they were doing yesterday and planning to do tomorrow because in most cases it doesn't concern the entire team it's it's something which concerns me and maybe as somebody who works with me, but not the entire 10 people. So people are complaining about that stand-ups quite often. So what would you say about that? Yeah, that's one of my favorite questions. <laughs> huh. um, I, 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 the, the thing is, um, first of all, as, as, a, as an organization or as a team, you should uh, agree on why you are doing stand-ups because in, in a lot of uh, uh, settings where scrum is only applied aesthetically as I like to say so uh -huh. people do all the, the stand-ups and all the meetings and all the burn downs but in the end it's just a waterfall disguised um, in, in a lot of those settings when you ask why do you do a stand-up uh, team members will say, oh, it's because our pro project manager wants to know what we're doing. Yes. Which is not at all the reason why you do a stand-up in an agile setting. Why, why did, did Jeff Sutherland and Gens Schwebe come up with that concept of a stand-up? Because it's one, like you mentioned, it's very important that a developer can focus as an individual or as a team. But one, uh, at one certain time in the day, we all gather 
and we talk to each other. And it's when, when you, you mentioned those three questions, what did I did, did do yesterday? What will I do today? And what are my, my impediments? Those first two questions aren't really important. It's about the third question. What are my impediments? The stand-up is the moment from the day where uh, an agile mature developer can talk to his teammates and say, okay, I'm, I've been working for one day on this feature and I cannot get my head around it. Can someone please help me find a solution for this specific problem? So it's the, the time of the day where developers, and I'm, now I'm becoming a little bit touchy-feely, should make themselves vulnerable to the rest of the group and, and talk about the problems that they're facing. And that's the real reason why you want to have a stand-up every day, is that developers get the information from each other they can use to help each other out, if you understand what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, so it's not, a it's not a control mechanism from a project manager or product owner. No, it's uh, a moment in the day which is really condensed in time, which allow them, uh, uh, allows you, for example, as a team member, to know what you can help your other team members with, where they are stuck, what you can use. Like uh, uh, what I like in a good stand-up is when somebody says, yeah, I'm really um, blocked on this specific issue that two other developers say, oh, but we had that issue two weeks ago. We'll, uh, after lunch, we'll join you and we'll fix it together. And then you notice that 15 minutes later, it's fixed. That's the type of behavior you want to see in a stand-up. You don't want to see in a stand-up people just um, talking, yeah, I did this yesterday, I will do this today, and uh, I have no impediments next. If you understand what I'm saying. That's, that's what I've seen in so many meetings, actually. It's exactly yeah. what's happening here. And, 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 and when you do that, it's even better not to do stand-ups, because then it's a waste of time. Mm -hmm. And this, an interesting take is also, just instead of uh, always using those three uh, questions and answers, just to, to use uh, the phrase, what did I learn yesterday? So as a group, instead of saying what you're doing, no, you just, just share something you learned the past day. That's really interesting. A lot more interesting than just saying what you're doing. So as a, as a, as a good, agile, mature team, you can play around with those questions, I believe. It just has to allow you as a team to get the temperature in the team, to know who needs help, who can help someone else out, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And many people, I actually like that answer. I, I didn't know about that. But many people are saying that uh, uh, they're, they're not saying, but asking. So why the team has to do it during the, during the morning in this time box period uh, instead of doing it during the day? We have everybody in the office or I have all the contacts of the people. I know everybody in my Slack chat or in Skype or somewhere. So why do I need to wait till the next morning in order to share my problems, like you said, impediments, and uh, only then I can get some answers? Why can't I just stand up in the in the middle of the day in front in, in the in the center of the office and ask everybody, "Hey, who can help me?" and just get that help immediately instead of waiting till the morning? That's what I've heard. What yeah, that's yeah. First of all, I think a stand up shouldn't be about uh 
uh, um, someone bringing tickets in the team. Mm -hmm. If you know what I mean. So if, if there is, if there really is a problem, uh, a, a critical problem or something important, I think by any means that person should go and stand in the middle of the floor and shout, Hey, I need help because this needs to be fixed. Yeah. Because agile and scrum are about fixing problems, creating value. So I don't think there is any problem with that. However, if that person would do that every day, two times, you can ask yourself a question, how big is that problem? And is there a, a really ASAP problem, priority number one, red flag every day, two times? Because when you act like that, for example, as a manager, when you constantly uh, fly in like this seagull or this pigeon and you drop something on the head of your team members and then you fly away, when mm -hmm. you do that two times every day, yeah, and after a while, your developers will say, oh, there, there he is again. I, I can see him fly. Oh, he's coming. Oh, he's coming. <laughs> so that's, that's really, really counterproductive. So, yeah, of course, that wouldn't work. And as you mentioned, for, for developers, it's really important to, to be able to stay focused and to um, get things done. And when there's constantly somebody screaming in the room, I've got this really urgent issue. Yeah. Then, <laughs> that, that won't do the trick. And, and then when you say, but is it really urgent? And they'll, then they'll say, yeah, but it's only a really small thing. And it's small. Why is it, why is it urgent? I, yeah. It's, so it's always, to answer your question, it's a nuance. I think a team should always, at any time of the day, if it's possible, if there is something really important that needs to be fixed, they should fix it, of course. But when it's something not that urgent or not that valuable, yeah, you might want to leave them alone and wait until the next stand-up the next day. Sure. Got it. Got it. Okay, well, it makes sense. Uh, what do you think, one of my last questions, what do you think about the very popular trend right now to go uh, on remote working? So people are visiting their offices less and less frequently and they stay home or they stay distributed in different countries and different places. And uh, the question is, uh, whether this game storming approaches or social sociocracy or social uh, components of the management will still be uh, valuable, will still will still work if we just completely go remote and stay stay in our homes and communicate only in Skype and only in this uh, virtual chat rooms. Yeah, the, 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 that's that's an extremely interesting question, which we which amongst colleagues we talk uh, about a lot. Because yeah, there's a tension, um, especially yeah, like we live in this, this global world where I used to work in New Zealand for clients uh, in the United States with development teams in the Netherlands. So you're working across three time zones, but you're creating value because you need that talent at a certain spot or a certain or people just travel and people change lives. So it's, it's a reality. <coughs> mm -hmm. And on the other side, you, you, and I've, I've witnessed that, uh, I was lucky enough, like for example, the last year to witness that a couple of times that you can, when you put people by accident almost together around a specific problem that you can come up with 
amazing, amazing solutions in only five or 10 minutes time, yeah. which would be impossible if you would have to do it in a Slack channel mm-hmm. because a Slack or instant messaging. I believe I, I really like Skype or teleconferencing when you have the, the quality connection mm-hmm. and when you have good gear that you can really talk to each other and even with three or four people on the same session. It can work. It's not as good as real life, but okay, you have to choose your battles. Do you want, do you want a talent and a distributed team or do you want uh, non-talented people sitting together in a dark room but talking to, to each other the whole day? Okay, it's okay. it's about looking at balance, but it, it's not easy. It, it's really, it depends. I think one of the most important thing is the, is the commitment of a team. I think you can, when you have a really committed distributed team, that it can work, that you can collaborate in a way that is maybe not 100%, but it gets to the 80%, which is enough which can be a lot better than an uncommitted co-located team. So, yeah, I don't know. There's no silver bullet answer there, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, again, there's, there's also another trend which says that uh, since we go remote, since more people are working from their homes, then maybe we need to, uh, to become more strict in our management and more... Uh, let's say traditional. So instead of letting people talk and, and, and be agile, let's put them into some quite strict borders and give them specific tasks and give them the rules and give them the discipline and, and turn them into, you know, code producing, uh, not monkeys, but, you know, programmers yeah. who just, who just stay focused on their tasks and, and be under quite strict management, quite dictate, well, not dictator, uh, dictatorship, but some, more or less uh, disciplined hierarchical management because we go remote. So what do you think yeah. on that trend? Yeah, or? I, I think that's, that's, that's a, a really, I think you can, you can micro task manage people only on projects that are complicated, but not on complex projects. Mm-hmm. So just to, to give you an idea, a complicated project is a project where you have uh, the relationship between cause and effect where you can predict it in advance, mm-hmm. which is the classical waterfall project. We know when we run to stages A, B, C, D, E, that we will get there. We're sure. That's how we build cars. Mm-hmm. The, other, the thing, though, is when you are managing complex projects, where complexity talks about that relationship between origin or between cause and effect. You cannot predict it up front. And software projects by default nowadays are complex. You know where you will end up somehow, mm-hmm. but you don't know exactly how you'll do it. So how is it possible in those kind of projects to really scope it out in big documentation and in a waterfall planning. It's, it's just impossible. So, and that's also why Agile and Scrum, where they originated from, it's a, a counter reaction to people wanting to apply waterfall principles on com- complex projects. They just fail. 
because you cannot predict what's going to happen when you're writing really complex software. Mm-hmm. And of course, when you then go, like what you ask, okay, we'll go remote, but we can only be remote. We can, if we can in advance, split out tasks, put um, estimations in time on them, and then measure how fast developers work on those specific tasks. Yeah. You can do that if you can predict upfront what those tasks will be, which is in, in some kinds, in some types of software projects, it's possible. If you have to do a setup that you've done uh, 20 times before, where you know how the system will react when there's nothing that you cannot predict, which is difficult in software, but still though, if, if, if there's nothing uncertain about the project, you can do it like that. When it's something that needs to be, that needs some creativity in coding, that needs something innovative in coding, when you do it in such a way, I, I don't think it will work. It's completely co- contradictory to what, what, uh, what this cross-functional, highly creative, innovative coding teamwork is about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it can work. It's just you have to choose. You cannot get everything. Yeah. You have to choose. Yeah, sounds like you're right. Okay, I'm out of questions. I uh, <laughs> I think I got all the answers, and it sounds really interesting. I definitely will read more about this sociocracy and holacracy and design thinking and game storming. That's the things I learned today. And I, it sounds like something which we definitely need to know about. Like you said, it's not really applicable tomorrow. It's not something we can practically apply to our projects tomorrow. And they start to work like that. But this is something we need to, to understand, right? It's yeah, and, and maybe just apply it in, in really small bits and you'll see stuff will step start to step. change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, step by step, in, incrementally. Incrementally, yeah. Yeah, okay. Sounds right. So I thank you very much for coming. That was an interesting Great. talk. Well, I learned I learned something today, that's for sure. Good. Thank you for the nice questions. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay. I, I wish you I wish you all the best. All the best in your business. Perfect. Have a nice evening. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.